Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word together, that Father, you would uh, illuminate for us the sweetness of Christ, the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the secure hope of the gospel, and the power of the Spirit to transform those who are in Christ until uh, we are glorified in your presence delighting with you in the presence of Jesus, our Savior, forever. We pray in his name. Amen. Please take a seat. Now, kids, I want to ask you a question first. Kids, can you think of a time when a grown-up who has not seen you in a long time meets you Again, they're probably like a friend of your parents or a family member who lives far away. And when a grown-up sees you for the first time after a long time away, what does that grown-up say? They look down at you and they say, oh, you have gotten so big. You have grown so much. When I last saw you, you were this tall. Kids, do you like it when grown-ups say that to you? No. <laughs> I didn't like it either, even though now I do it when I see kids who I haven't seen for a long time. We cannot help it. But kids, you don't like it. I think I know why. Because even though that grown-up is talking about how big you are, they are remembering how small you were. Even though they're talking to you as somebody who's big, they're talking to you like you're still small. They remember this tiny version of you. And, and I know that 12-year-olds don't like people thinking of them as 6-year-olds. And 8-year-olds do not like people remembering when they were 3-year-olds. We don't like when they're treating us like we were when we were younger. Now, kids, that is what happened to Jesus in the story we are reading today, Jesus came back to his hometown. Jesus came back to all these people who knew him a long time ago. And they looked at Jesus while he was doing the same thing he did everywhere. What was Jesus doing when he went from town to town? He was doing miracles. He was teaching. He was showing that he was God's king. But all these people, when they looked at Jesus, could say was, I remember when that guy was a kid. That's just an ordinary kid. He is nothing special. He can't be the king. What they were forgetting is that it's actually part of the good news of Jesus that Jesus was an ordinary kid, that Jesus lived an ordinary life. He was God. But Jesus, as God, was born to be just like you and me. God was born as a human. Jesus had to listen to his parents. Jesus had to do his chores. Jesus had to be patient with his brothers and sisters. Now, I wonder, it, when those people saw Jesus and they were like, oh, I remember that guy when he was little. I remember when he was small. Did they remember that Jesus didn't act like the other kids? <laughs> did they remember that Jesus did listen to his parents? That he did do all his chores? He was patient with his siblings? Did they remember that? When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for all the times that you didn't listen to your parents, all the times you weren't patient with your siblings. And Jesus was able to do that because of that perfect, ordinary life that he lived. 
He was able to trade that perfect life and how God saw it with your life on the cross. And when he took the punishment for you, he could give you his perfect ordinary life so that God could see it with Jesus and you linked together and say, I am going to treat that boy and that girl like Jesus deserves when their trust is in him. So we can be so thankful that Jesus lived an ordinary life like we did, leading up to the extraordinary good news in the gospel. Now let's see how this happens in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus goes to visit his hometown. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Over the past few weeks, we have been watching Jesus perform these incredible demonstrations, these amazing signs of his authority in his miracles. He's got power over the storms and over nature. He has power over Satan and his armies. He even has power over death. And we saw the faith and the fear of the people who are witnessing these undeniable signs. Now you can see from verse one that our story follows right along for those. Jesus is still traveling. He leaves those places. He comes to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And he goes and speaks in the synagogue. And Mark says, everybody who hears him is just astonished. Now remember all the way back in chapter one, when Jesus was teaching at a synagogue in Capernaum, and receives a very similar response. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who has authority, not as the scribes. So the Nazarenes have the same reaction as everybody else does when they hear Jesus teach. They are astonished. They are undeniably witnessing a man who is showing them something they have never seen before. But there is something different hiding in the astonishment of the people in Nazareth. They say, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Notice that these folks are not denying a single thing that Jesus has done. They know he's saying these things. They know he's doing these signs. They acknowledge that all of this is very clear. There is so much evidence of who Jesus is and what he is doing. The same evidence that is causing many people right now to put their faith in him. But the Nazarenes are asking these questions with suspicion. They go on to say, is this not the carpenter? Son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? They're whispering amongst themselves while Jesus is teaching. I know this guy. I know his family. 
there's his sisters right over there. And they're casting doubt on whether or not Jesus is qualified to be the one up there teaching. He's just a carpenter. He's got no formal training. Where's his degree? Who let that guy up there? Their question, isn't this the son of Mary, likely goes even further. Because at this time, no one ever identified you as the son of your mother. It was always the son of your father. So this was likely reflecting the suspicion that had gone around when Mary was pregnant before she was married. That this might have been the cause of some illicit relationship. Those same rumors, right, that Joseph was worried about until the angel Gabriel came to him and told him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. All of those questions that the Nazarenes have asked, where did he get this? How was he doing these things? Isn't he this person? All those questions could have been answered if the Nazarenes were actually genuinely asking those questions. Jesus has already shown all those Pharisees and Sadducees, despite all their formal training, have no idea what scripture is saying. They have polluted it with their own biases and their own preferences. And he has shown that he has a special authority directly from God that no training could grant. At the very beginning of his ministry, the heavens opened and God said, this is my beloved son. Surely this would have been a sufficient answer to anyone who was actually wondering about the legitimacy of Jesus' birth or where he got his teaching from. But it's clear that these Nazarenes don't want answers to those questions. It's not that they've engaged in some sort of a rational thought process where they're trying to evaluate whether or not Jesus could actually be something more than an ordinary man. They don't want him to be more than an ordinary man. They certainly do not want him to be the Messiah. Mark says they took offense at him. So their astonishment at his teaching is actually that anybody so lowly and uncouth as Jesus could be anything other than a day laborer. So this is our first point. The Nazarenes are astonished at Jesus and they reject him. Something I hope that you've been seeing as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, I think we've mentioned it a few times, is that faith, while it is certainly clearly and only a gift from God, is not irrational. Hebrews says faith is belief in what is hoped for and unseen, but that doesn't mean that God gives us no evidence as a foundation for that faith. Many atheists and even misguided Christians will say, well, faith by definition is believing something that you have no evidence of. Now, most atheists, certainly the popular atheists, if you watch them in interviews, will admit that they are technically not atheists. They're actually agnostics. None of them have proof that there is no God. They simply say that there is no evidence that there is a God. There is no positive evidence for them to believe. This is where you'll generally hear them say something like, if God could provide evidence for me, I'd believe in him. If I could see this proof, then I would accept the evidence. However, the whole point of the Gospels is to give us evidence. That's why we're walking through them and preaching them. Let's behold the evidence of what Jesus did, the evidence of who he is. Let's listen to eyewitness testimonies and in fact cross-reference them with the other eyewitness testimonies that we have in the Gospels. When we come to faith, while it is certainly a gift from God, God works in us an accepting of that evidence, agreeing that it is true. 
Based on that evidence, we say we can trust in the promises God has made, including the things we cannot yet see. So while the skeptic might tell you, I reject faith because there is no evidence, what they're actually saying is, I reject the evidence that I have been given. This is what is happening in Nazareth. And the evidence that they are being given is pretty clear. They are getting such clear evidence of Jesus, who he is, that they cannot help but be astonished. And they are rejecting it. People can try and argue that their unbelief is a matter of arguments and proofs, but at bottom, we see that what's happening here begins in their hearts. Their hearts refuse to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that the gospel could be true. There is nothing wrong with wanting evidence to know what to believe. We see Jesus is always ready to give evidence of who he is. He is happy to answer Nicodemus' questions. He shows Thomas the holes in his hands. God commends the Bereans who search the scriptures to determine whether the gospel is true. God does not hate someone who actually is looking for evidence because God knows where all the evidence is pointing. That evidence begins in creation itself. David said, every day and night proclaims the creator. Paul says in Romans that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly visible since the beginning of the world. So much so that anyone who denies them is without excuse. That stamp of God's glory is so imprinted on creation that it certainly removes any excuse for atheism. Beyond this, the stamp of who God is, even his goodness, is on our own hearts. It's on our conscience which reminds us that there is a perfect moral standard in the universe. We know that that truth gnaws at all of our hearts. Paul says, even when people have never read the Bible, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. This evidence from outside us and inside us, it's not enough to save us, but it would certainly be enough to drive honest men to go looking for salvation. Has this God revealed a way to be saved? Why we haven't met this moral standard, what he has done about it, and be excited and satisfied when they find it. It is also clear enough that God, Paul can say that anyone who denies this outright is suppressing the truth. So it is not superior intelligence that keeps us from faith, just like it's not superior intelligence that causes us to believe. It is personal Offense in our hearts. How often have you heard a rational skeptic say, well, you know, if your God was real, I'd still hate him. He'd be evil. I mean, I, I don't accept him because of the rational thought process and arguments, but if he was real, boy, would I have a few things to say to him. This shows that even if they had evidence, they wouldn't want it to be true. Deep down, it's not their intelligence. It's their sinful hearts rejecting God. So Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. We tend to think about atheism and agnosticism when we talk about unbelievers. And that's not wrong in this culture. But look at this event in Nazareth. Everybody here who rejected Jesus claimed to believe in God, to trust his scriptures, probably even to be waiting for the Messiah to come. The Bible warns us 
that getting closer to the truth of the gospel in our minds, conceding more of what is true, having a better foundation while still rejecting the gospel does not put you in a better position than the atheist and the agnostic. It might save you a great deal of sin, and that's not a bad thing, but it also increases the foolishness of your rejection. Paul continues in Romans, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It will matter to God at his judgment because he is a fair judge. How much you knew of him while still rejecting his salvation. It will matter how much you knew when you chose selfishness over trusting in Jesus. The more evidence you had, the more reason you had to accept him, the more astonishing your rejection the more obstinate you have shown your heart to be. John Gill says the proofs of Christ's deity and messiahship are so plain and incontestable that it is amazing that there should be any who have read them or heard of them that should be deists or continue unbelievers. Such unbelief must be owing to a wretched stupidity and judicial blindness of the mind. This is what's happening in Nazareth. The reports of what of Jesus have gone out everywhere. Witnesses are running to and fro. And Jesus is right here teaching you with astonishing authority. And yet the Nazarenes hate him. They don't just reject him. They despise him. Mark says Jesus marveled at their unbelief. This is a word that is used for Jesus very sparingly. It's not surprised like Jesus didn't know that this would happen. It's more like witnessing a very rare and striking anomaly, like getting to see thunder in a snowstorm. You knew that it was true, but it is astonishing to behold. With all of this evidence in front of them, essentially needing to concede the truth of what is going on, they still have to say, it is too offensive to me that this man would be the Messiah. Even if this could be the difference between hope and despair, between salvation and damnation, it is just too offensive to me. So our second point, Jesus is astonished at the Nazarene's rejection. Mark also says Jesus was able to perform very few miracles there. The Nazarenes knew Jesus could perform miracles. We see that in the questions they ask. They still rejected him. Jesus' miracles were always meant for those who had faith in him. He would have been used these miracles to help faithful people better understand him, to grow in their faith, to, to know him as the object of their faith, to point them always to the gospel, that he was not just here to offer physical healing, but that he was here to offer them something greater. The Nazarenes show by the lack of miracles performed there that they are rejecting Jesus and they are also rejecting being saved by him. They did not want him. They do not want to be saved by him. If he had performed miracles for them, they would not have understood them. They would have been more satisfied in their unbelief. We see that all the time. We saw in Jeremiah when God is gracious to men who reject him. It just makes them more content in their rejection. Happy that they do not need God, even while God is the source of every good thing. So Jesus being able to perform few miracles there only shows further how astonishing was their unbelief. Despite him being astonished, 
Jesus is still able to explain their unbelief. He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own household. This saying is proven true again and again in the prophets, particularly in Jeremiah. Kevin read for us uh, Jeremiah, about Jeremiah's hometown of Anathoth and how they treated him, going so far even as to say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. The men who grow up with a prophet feel all the more reason to be offended by him. They're so used to approaching him as an equal. And now to have this normal guy that they all knew growing up come back and say, I've got a special anointing. I've got a special message from God fills all these old acquaintances with resentment and envy. They begin to hope that that prophet is false and they refuse to believe his message. This is all the more true in the case of Jesus, who comes to Nazareth, showing that he is, in fact, even more than a prophet. This only increases the rage and envy. It exposes the selfish heart of the people rejecting him. But remember, even while Jesus was living an ordinary life, he wasn't an ordinary kid. Did they not see that there was only one normal kid in the neighborhood who never sinned? If they had not been so offended, they would have figured out that even that ordinary life of Jesus was a part of the good news. The Messiah didn't come to take a lofty position over us. Here you have evidence that this man who is clearly the Messiah is in fact the man who is ready to grow up among you. To suffer the same trials you did, the same temptations you did, to face them all and to do it without sin. It was through his perfect ordinary life that they should have recognized that this man was becoming the one who could take their place and save them. Ultimately, the reason these Nazarenes are offended is because of one of the greatest gifts that Jesus was offering them. But God says, even this resentment will become a part of his plan for the Messiah. Isaiah 53 talks both about Jesus' ordinary life and the resentment he faced because of it. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a rooted of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah says that this was the plan that Jesus would live an ordinary life. That we wouldn't be drawn to him for worldly reasons. We wouldn't think he was the Messiah because he lived in some great palace and had an easy life. Because he never had to face the challenges we did. We wouldn't be chasing after him like people chase after prosperity preachers. I want a piece of the worldly goods that that guy is offering. No, Jesus would be a person who, when he appeared among us, had no visible majesty, no special beauty that we would all be drawn to him as someone who might satisfy our worldly needs. And this would be the very reason that many people refuse to accept that that would be the Messiah. We see in the lavish lives of many people who call themselves ministers of the gospel, they do not accept such a Messiah either. Yet, it is by this very rejection, even leading up 
to their cries to crucify him, that Jesus would bear our griefs, would be stricken and smitten and afflicted for us. The Nazarenes are heaping on Jesus the exact rejections that they deserve from God. And Jesus has come among them to willingly receive that rejection so that bearing what they deserve, he will be able to offer them what he deserves as he takes that rejection all the way to the cross. Jesus knows this is all part of God's plan. Jesus is confident nothing is going to stop God's plan. And Jesus loves to obey his father. So no amount of rejection and no scorn is ever going to stop Jesus from persevering in his mission. After his rejection from Nazareth, you see what he does. He goes to the next village and the next one and the next one. He keeps going. He keeps preaching. And then he even sends out his disciples with this same message. Now, does Jesus send out his disciples saying, I think it's okay for you to go out and share the gospel because everyone's going to like it. Nobody's going to reject you. They're all going to be very kind to you. No, he sends them out knowing that the opposite will often be true. Let's continue to read Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This passage builds upon so much of what we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark. In chapters 1 and 2, Mark tells us about the calling of Jesus' disciples. In chapter 3, we saw that he set 12 of them apart. And then we saw them following him, learning from him, witnessing who he was, being taught privately. And now, Jesus sends them upon, out on a special mission, given special authority. This again is more evidence for us that Jesus is the true Messiah. The power that Jesus is able to work over demons and sickness is even a power that he can grant to anyone he appoints. The authority that Jesus has is an authority he can bestow on anyone that he appoints. He can appoint officers and ministers in his kingdom. He is more than just a powerful man. He is clearly acting as God's anointed king bringing in God's kingdom. Now, we've already seen that the apostles have a distinct calling. This is not a continuing role in the church that anyone can, anyone can step forward and claim for themselves. Therefore, we don't have to look at these specific instructions as being necessary for all missions today. In fact, many of these instructions were not even true for some of the later missions of the apostles. But Jesus does use these very special instructions in this first gospel preaching mission to teach the apostles and us things that are still true about gospel proclamation today. This is our third point. The gospel is urgently and widely proclaimed as it is received and rejected. 
while Jesus, why is Jesus so eager to send out these apostles now? He's still here in the flesh. He hasn't even yet accomplished everything he came to do. He has not yet died and risen again. But Jesus desires that his good news be proclaimed widely and be proclaimed urgently. Jesus is not here to waste any time. He has taken exactly the amount of time he needs to call the apostles. We saw that was one of the first things he did. He wanted to find these guys, call them, to equip them, to teach them, and to send them out. This has been one of his greatest priorities. So that they could go out to others without delay and proclaim this good news so that as many as possible could repent and believe. His instructions to the apostles reflect this urgency. Get out, go, don't spend all of this time collecting these things you would normally need for a journey. Get out there, just bring your staff. These instructions also show that the apostles were meant to, rem- uh, to depend upon God's providence. On later journeys, the apostles might bring money. They might have bread. They might arrange to stay at the house of a friend. None of that was wrong to do. They could make prudent plans. But this first mission was meant to teach them that even in all those later missionary efforts, the success of their mission always depended ultimately upon God, not on them. And that is still true. This is God's good news. He is gracious to you use us so that people would believe, but the success of that mission will always ultimately depend upon God. It is his authority, his sovereignty that oversees the proclamation of his word and the going out and growth of his kingdom. And this was meant to give the apostles then and even give us now confidence that the mission of Jesus will be successful. Learning to rely entirely upon God and know that God is committed to uh, the success of the going out of the gospel. So with this special authority, with this power from Jesus, with all this confidence in God's providence, should the apostles then expect that every time they tell someone to repent and believe that it is going to happen? No. There will be more places like Nazareth. More people will witness the miracles, behold the special authority, hear the good news, see God's providence over the apostles' mission, and not receive them, not even want to listen to them. So Jesus says, if any place will not receive you, if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this action is not meant to be a kind of final seal upon their fate. It's not meant to say that all gospel proclamation here forever will be hopeless. There are many examples in the Bible of the apostles themselves and the apostles teaching the church to hold out hope for those who we love who have rejected the gospel. There may at times be be wisdom in moving on from a confrontation with someone who has very clearly refused to listen to you refuse to hear the gospel, but we never have to believe that anyone is beyond saving. This shaking off the dust from the feet was a very special prophetic warning that Jesus gave the apostles to give to these towns. It was very common practice in this time when a Jew was visiting a Gentile nation for them to shake the dust off their feet as they left. And it symbolized 
the horrible pollution of sin in that place, that they were shaking off that pollution, that they were rejecting that unbelief and the practices there. So for the apostles to do this in Jewish towns was a warning to them that their rejection of the gospel was not so different than the rejection of God among pagan nations. This is what we previously saw about unbelief. Ultimately, when God separates the sheep from the goats, it will not save you that you believed more about God than the atheists and the animists did. It won't help you that you liked the Bible. There was a lot of good stuff in here. Or that you thought Christian morality was a really good idea. Again, that might spare you a lot of sin. That's a good thing. It will probably even improve your life here. But it will ultimately leave you on the side of God's enemies. You will be counted among those who opposed the gospel and opposed Jesus. This is a timely warning for many people who call themselves Christians, for many churches and denominations, that the the apostles would have shaken the dust off their feet because they had rejected the gospel, thinking that they were somehow different than the people who openly and willingly say, God is not God, Christ is not Lord. Christian behavior will not save you. Church attendance will not save you. If that is your hope, then one day you will hear God say, I never knew you. I want to speak to the person who knows that they are not convinced of the gospel. Maybe it's because you reject the existence of God out of hand. Maybe you believe in some kind of God, but you reject much of what the Bible says. Maybe you think there's things in the Bible that are true, but you reject what we say about the gospel here. In any case, ask this question. Is your skepticism or your unbelief based on an actual desire for evidence? Are you actually wondering whether these things are true? Do you want to be shown? If evidence is what you want, God provides evidence. If you have questions, God has answers. Ask them, bring your questions, bring your desire, your concern, and see that this wonderful salvation is not some feel-good fable that we cling to to hide from existential dread. But it is the true good news of salvation from God to men. Jesus actually came. He actually accomplished this good news for all who trust in him. But you must ask yourself, is the problem really out there with the lack of evidence? Or is the reason in here, in yourself? Is it a problem in your own heart? The Nazarenes acted like they had good reasons to reject Jesus. But ultimately, the idea of him being the Messiah was simply just offensive to them. You may also say that you have good reasons to doubt what is being preached. But is it really that these claims offend you? Maybe it offends you that you are a sinner who deserves to go to hell. Maybe you are offended that God says things are sinful, which you think should not be sinful. Maybe you are angry that God's will has included suffering. These are not reasons the gospel is untrue, and you know it. 
they are reasons you hate it. Do not mix up those two things. Do not confuse reasons that the gospel would be untrue with reasons why you just hate it. Because ultimately it shows the problem is not with God, it's with you. You are blinded by pride and sin and Satan, whether or not you acknowledge he exists. For all your arguments, your claims that maybe you're just too humble to be that dogmatic, you must just ask whether you're protecting your own pride and holding on to the passions that you want to live in. You are rejecting everything God has given you. And God warned Jeremiah what would happen to those people in Anathoth. That they might live happy lives for a while, even enjoy some of God's good gifts and use those as a reason why they've rejected him. But one day they will be ashamed. But you can repent before that day. And because faith is a gift of God, because your problem is in the heart and God changes hearts. Then you can know even now that Jesus died to take the punishment for unbelief. He died to take the punishment for rejection so that you can repent of your unbelief and run to him and be saved. Christian, this is helpful for us to think about as well, isn't it? We often feel like there is doubt gnawing at us. Now we are freed from sin. We are not under the power of Satan, but our hearts are still susceptible to the sin of discontent with what God has given us. We forget the evidence that God has given. We cloud it in our minds. We forget the good gifts of God and his sanctification. And our hearts say that the problem is that God just hasn't given us all the things we need. There's things lacking. Why hasn't God provided what I need to feel restful and secure in believing in him? Dear Christian, evidence is a good thing. Our faith rests on much evidence, but our faith ultimately is a gift from God. A gift worked in us by the Spirit. Only the Spirit was able to break the chains of our own offense to the gospel. When we would have rejected any evidence, and we would have rejected Jesus when he was standing right in front of us, it was the Spirit that broke that bondage in us. So ultimately, it is the continuing work of the Spirit which will be the answer to our doubt and unbelief. Be skeptical of your own heart before you are skeptical of God. Bring it to God, praying for assurance, praying for rest in the gospel, for delight in him. Yes, better acquaint yourself with the evidence he has given. Yes, enjoy the evidence that he has given. Enjoy learning more about him. But ultimately, your faith will never be about whether you are smart enough and know enough and understand enough. It is because we have a good God that works faith in sinful hearts. Now, this passage also helps us then to approach other non-believers in the world around us. The opposition to the faith in the world today, that's a pretty regular topic of discussion among Christians, isn't it? I'm sure many of us have had it around the dinner table many times. The state of the world and the culture and how they feel about the gospel. But we have to be careful that if, as, our, as we focus upon this opposition and antagonism, that we do not turn every non-believing person into some kind of boogeyman that is full of spite and clever arguments, and they're all cunning and cruel. 
so that we excuse ourselves from ever needing to share the gospel with people like that. We tell ourselves the environment is just too hostile right now. The opponents are too deadly. It really is just too much for someone like me, and God would have to recognize that. Just like those Israelites, those spies looking in on the land of Canaan, who came back and said, it's full of giants. I don't care if God says we'd be victorious. We are not going in there. Nowadays, we hear about atheists on YouTube. We hear about secularism taking hold. And we say, this culture is full of giants. I don't care whether God said the gospel will be effective. I am not going out there. Friend, if you go out into this world sharing the gospel, you will be rejected. In fact, there is no way for you to avoid being rejected. Jesus was rejected. Your arguments are never going to be as good as his. Your evidence will never be as clear as his. Your gospel proclamation will never be as authoritative as his. By all means, learn the evidences, learn the proofs, grow, know the right answers. But ultimately, if it is the true gospel you are sharing, you will not be rejected because you are a failure, because you didn't have enough of what that person needed. You will be rejected because men take offense at Jesus himself. They take offense at the gospel. So the reason they will reject you is that you are an ambassador of Christ. So you will be rejected. And what did Jesus do when he was rejected? He kept going. He preached the gospel to the next man, to the next town. Because rejection could never dampen his urgent desire for the gospel to be heard and believed. Rejection could never dampen his confidence that by the grace of God, many would believe. And nothing would stop his kingdom from growing. Because this is a work of God. Just as it is a wicked offense that causes people to reject, it is a powerful work of the Spirit that causes people to believe. Jesus knew that while many people would respond like the Nazarenes, who had every reason to believe and still reject him, we will see many who have every reason to reject come to faith and believe. And that also will be something to marvel at. What happened when the Israelites finally trusted in God and went in to fight those giants? They fell one at a time before them. The kingdom of God conquered. Has fear eclipsed your urgency for the gospel to be proclaimed over this whole world? Has your fear eclipsed your faith in the power of God and the gospel of Jesus? Has your fear of men eclipsed your love for them? Your longing for their salvation? Don't be afraid of unbelievers. Even their rejection, as we have seen, is not outside of God's will and his plan. Even his plan for us, when they reject us, we are receiving the opposition of Jesus. We are being opposed on his behalf, and God says that uh, he will even use that to grow faith in you. As it said in 1 Peter 4, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. Rejection, unbelief, skepticism, none of this is beyond God's perfect plan for his kingdom. None of this should dampen the urgency we have from Jesus that his gospel would go out to the whole world. And we can even take this rejection as a reminder that we are following Christ. If we are rejected for his gospel, it reminds us that we do belong to him. We are not of this world, that we are a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's even what we are offering to this world, a rock solid, eternal, true hope. Let us be joyful and confident as we proclaim that gospel in all circumstances, eager to see it go out into the world as hope for them, for our own joy and assurance, and certainly for the glory of our Savior, Jesus, who suffered for us, who was rejected for us, who lived an ordinary life for us, who died and rose for us. His name is worthy to be proclaimed over the whole world, and it will be for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Father, we know that our hearts are naturally prone to take offense at your gospel. We thank you that you have been gracious to us, that many have been saved despite being dead in our sins and transgressions. Father, we praise you that this can give us confidence to go out into the world, and I pray that we would not fear the world, that we would not fear rejection and opposition to the gospel. May Jesus be greater to us than all that we fear. Father, we thank you that Jesus came, was willing to humble himself for us, to even be rejected for us, to die for us, that he might raise, be raised from the dead, even for us, to give us a secure hope. May our trust always be in him. May we grow in our trust. May we bring our doubts and our fears to you trusting that you will surely hold all your sheep secure and even go seeking those sheep that are lost. Grow the kingdom of Jesus until the day when our faith becomes sight and we will dwell secure in that kingdom forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please join.